I hope you feel better. I hope you have a healthy baby. I, I hope that marriage works out. I hope I get an A in that class. I hope to make a difference in the world. I hope to meet somebody special. Every day we use that small magical word, hope. And it's tough to live even for one day without hope. What is hope? Based on all the examples I just gave and the biblical text we're going to be exploring from Jeremiah 33, I would define hope like this. Hope is a vision for better days that changes us in the present. Hope is a vision for better days. In other words, there's something up ahead just around the corner. We're looking forward to it. We can see it and it is good. But that good future, that hope isn't just abstract because it it reaches in and it transforms us today. So, for example, if I'm hoping for an A in a class, that hope will, at least it should, motivate me to study right now. If I'm hoping for raise at work, that hope should motivate me to work harder and to work better. If I want world peace, I can start at home and improve the relationships that I have with my family and my neighbors. You know, as a child, I knew well the power of hope around this time of year, Christmas time, because I knew my parents would buy me presents, and I had hope. I had a vision for better days with better toys. And that vision, that hope, changed my actions and attitudes at the time. That vision for the future drove me to scour catalogs and magazines to make careful lists of the toys that I really wanted, that I knew would make my life better. That hope even drove me a couple times, I must confess, to do a search around the house to see if I could get a sneak peek at those presents, at those better days coming ahead. Hope is a vision for better days that changes us in the present. As we talk about this topic of hope today, I want to introduce you to a prophet of hope, a man named Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a real figure of history. Around the year 627 B.C., Jeremiah would have been about a junior in high school, a teenager, 16, 17, somewhere in there, a relatively young man. And God came to him and said this in Jeremiah 1.4. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as prophet to the nations. Now, just an aside here, if anybody ever tries to tell you that you or we as human beings are just accidents of, of biology and creation, that, that our existence is a mere happenstance, a random thing, that all that exists is the time between the cradle and the grave. Look at this verse. Before God formed you in your mother's womb, before God, before you were born, God knew you and God selected you. He set you apart for a purpose and to do his will. So let's fast forward 40 years. Jeremiah has been a prophet for 40 years. But the nation of Israel is now in a time of crisis. The year is 587 B.C., and the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and his troops have surrounded the capital city of Jerusalem, and they're under siege. People are starving to death. Supplies are running out. Zedekiah, the king of Israel at the time, looks at the odds, even though it's pretty obvious what's going to happen, and he still thinks he can beat Nebuchadnezzar, so he keeps fighting. Jeremiah, though, comes to the king with a message from God, and he says, in essence, it's over. Surrender. 
If you keep fighting, more lives will be lost. Do it God's way, the easy way, surrender. Or you can do it the hard way and you'll pay the consequences. Well, we know from 2 Timothy 25, or excuse me, not 2 Kings 25, that Zedekiah did choose to do it the hard way and that he did pay the consequences. Why did he choose to do that? Well, the rest of the spiritual leaders and prophets at the time were assuring the king that Jeremiah was a fraud and a crackpot. They kept telling the king what he wanted to hear. In other words, they were saying things like, you're the king. You can do this. God is on our side. We will always win. Nobody can mess with our nation. But Jeremiah kept coming to the king and warning him that these false prophets were merely offering cheap and false hope, not real hope. Listen to what he says to the king in Jeremiah 6. They dress the wounds of my people as though they were not serious. Peace. Peace, they say, when there is no peace. Jeremiah's basic point here is, is it wasn't a military situation. It was a spiritual situation. He says that the people of God have rejected the covenant of God, that they've been being um, presumptuous about God's protection. They've been committing spiritual adultery for so long. And now they need to go through a time of of, of suffering the consequences before God will renew them and bring them back to their homeland. Zedekiah obviously didn't like this message because he, he has Jeremiah arrested. He's thrown into prison. And in the midst of the prison cell, derided, misunderstood, persecuted, labeled, Jeremiah proclaimed one of the most powerful words of hope found in the entire Hebrew Bible. Chapters 30 through 33 of Jeremiah are often called the book of consolation or just simply the book of hope. And notice that hope, according to the Bible, is a vision for better days. The days are coming, declares the Lord. Time and time again throughout those chapters, we see that phrase, the days are coming, says the Lord. Better days are ahead. You know, all throughout the Old Testament, there are hints and pictures and clues that say the same thing. Better days are coming. Isaiah the prophet has a picture of harmony where the lion and the lamb lie down together where all is right and harmonious in creation. In another passage, weapons of war are turned into, into farm implements and people turn to God. Jeremiah himself speaks of better days in chapter 29, verse 11, where he says these well-known words, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope. In a future, don't we yearn for better days? When our body is wasting away due to illness or age. When we failed in our business or our marriage or our family. When our life is marked by personal failures. Don't we yearn for better days? When the world is full of anger and hatred. When the most vulnerable among us are abused and exploited. When division among people because of race or gender or ethnicity or nationality is on the rise, don't we yearn for better days? We need hope. We desperately need hope. I mean, if we don't have hope that our our hard work will be rewarded, if we don't have hope that our prayers make a difference, if we don't have hope that the things in our world that are wrong will eventually be made right, if we don't have hope, then what's the point? But we can 
And we do have hope. Hope is about a promise of better days, a promise. And God is a God who always keeps his promises. For the follower of Jesus Christ, hope always depends on the reliability of the one who is making the promises. It's never based on wishful thinking or positive feelings. It's not even based upon how much faith we have. Hope is based on a God who is really there. A God who has left good and sufficient reasons for us to know and to trust him. As the Apostle Paul says, if the whole Jesus Christ thing isn't reliable and trustworthy, then it's not worth our hope. Now, this view of hope, this view of hope as better days to come based upon God's promises to his people. Runs counter to a misconception that goes like this. Religion and spirituality are based on myths and feelings, while science is based purely on reason and rationality. So, for instance, the contemporary author named Sam Harris quotes a young woman who wrote to his website. As far as trying to rationally prove that God exists, I don't even try. So how do I know God exists? I feel him. Now, certainly there's nothing wrong with feeling God's presence. But apparently for Harris, every believer would express their faith in the same way. That it's subjective, it's a feeling, it's emotionally based. It's a product of us wanting something to be true. Elsewhere, Harris says, tell it about Christian that his wife is cheating on him or that frozen yogurt can make a man invisible. He's likely to require as much evidence as anyone else. But tell him to accept the truths of Christianity and the Bible, and he seems to require no evidence at all. So according to Harris, the world is divided neatly and cleanly into two and only two categories of people. Reasonable and irrational people like him who actually think through issues and come to the right conclusions. That faith is crazy. And irrational, foolish people who don't think through the issues and therefore mistakenly conclude that there must be a God. Where's the hope in that? But time and time again, the Bible has been proven to be historically accurate. There are thousands more manuscripts of the the Bible than any of the other ancient texts that we would never call into question. And in the Bible, hope in God is never pulled out of thin air. It's based upon a particular history with God, a history that gives us glimpses of God's character and provides us reasons why we can trust God and place our hope in God. In the Bible, science and faith are never mutually incompatible quests. Hope is based on reason. It's not irrational. It's not pulled out of thin air. Instead, The promises of God point to a specific person, and he is the reason for our hope. It's not wrapped up in a season or a program or in a new job or a self-improvement program or a better spouse or a bigger house. Hope is wrapped up in a person. The Apostle Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, where he says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. God's promise for a better future, yes, in Jesus. God's promise for redemption and forgiveness, for new beginnings, yes, in Jesus. God's promise for life after death in the hope of heaven, yes, in Jesus. God's promise to love his people, to keep his covenant with his people, yes, in Jesus. Now, in the Old Testament before Jesus came, the biblical word for this person was Messiah. 
In the verse 15 of Jeremiah 33, this person is called a, a righteous branch who will sprout from David's line. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, throughout the Old Testament, the greatest king was King David. He was a flawed man, an imperfect man. We know that from Scripture. But he was also a warrior for justice and truth, and he was a man after God's own heart, we're told. And toward the end of David's life and throughout the rest of the Old Testament story, God kept promising, I will raise up a king like David, but much better than David. He will bless the whole earth. He will rule my people with righteousness and justice and peace. In Jeremiah thirty-three sixteen, Jesus is called the Lord, our righteousness. And in the Bible, righteousness is a, is a relational team, a term. It, it, uh, it means that a righteous person is someone who lives totally right with God and totally right with other people. Now, unfortunately, the Bible says that none of us are righteous. None of us live totally right with God and totally right with other people at every area and every time of our life. Perhaps we might get it right part of the time, but we're either righteous or we're not. But this branch, this promised one, the Messiah, will be called the Lord, our righteousness. In other words, he will get it right all the time. In every situation, in every relationship, he will be the only fully righteous human being who has ever lived. And, and it leads us into the heart of the gospel. You see, the New Testament declares that when Jesus, the Lord, our righteousness, died on the cross, he took upon himself our unrighteousness, our mistakes, our failures, our flaws, our sins. And in a marvelous, hard to imagine exchange, we receive his righteousness. That should give us hope. An incredible hope. Hope is about a promise and hope is about a person, Jesus Christ. Do you see how hope can change you? If you've opened your heart to Jesus Christ, he will give you a vision for better days. I mean, that's why Christians throughout the centuries have been marked by hope. When persecution comes, Christians don't despair. When tragedy strikes, Christians don't lose hope. When faced with long-term obstacles, followers of Christ have hope. When loved one dies, when we face death ourselves, we have hope. When the world tells us our lives are insignificant and meaningless is the product of, of just natural things, followers of Christ have hope. We have hope. We can have joy. We can have peace. We can have forgiveness. We can have the promise of eternal life. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's available to us today. We can have a taste of it today. When we call on the name of Jesus Christ, he gives us a taste of his incredible future, better days right now. In the remaining minutes, I want to ask a few questions of you, but we begin with where do you find your hope? What's your basis for hope in this life? Is it your education? Is it your talents and opportunities, your abilities? Is it hard work? You place your hope in personal connections or your, the next generation, your kids, your grandkids? Do you place your hope in friendships or your good deeds or accomplishments? Where do you find hope?
Do you have hope? Or do you try not to think about it because you really don't know? Because maybe you can't find any reason or purpose for life. Maybe you believe that this is all there is, the span of time between the cradle and the grave. And whatever you can squeeze out of those years is all there is. Love, maybe. Family experiences, good times, accomplishments. But then what? Where's the hope? We can have hope. Because God has created us for a relationship with himself. And God has sent us on Jesus to be our righteousness. He's given us a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the grave. We can have hope. We do have hope in Christ and in Christ alone. In Jesus, all of God's promises are yes. Better days are to come. We can have hope. So I'm going to leave you with four questions. Is your hope centered in the person of Jesus Christ or is it centered and found on something else? If you're a Christian, has your hope grown and expanded or has it diminished? How has has hope in Christ changed your life? If we have the hope of Christ, it should change our values, our priorities, how we use our time, our talents, our treasures, how we view the tragedies and hardship of life, the injustice of life. How has hope changed your life? And what are you willing to risk and to do in faith because of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for you and me? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have In Jesus Christ. It's a hope based in truth. It's a hope based in historical events. It's a hope based in Jesus Christ. So Lord, today as we look around our world, there can be so many things that cause us to lose hope. There is so much darkness in the world, but yet we look to Jesus Christ and we see that he is the light and the light will overcome the darkness. And so, Lord, we have hope. We trust in you, Lord. We offer ourselves to you. Grow our faith and grow our hope. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.